There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Do you roll a surf cart full of tackle and three 10-foot rods onto a crowded beach and soak bloodworms for croakers right where everyone is swimming? You bring your favorite tackle, lures, a cooler of food and drink if you feel you need it, and away we go. You get these guys that just left Wall Street a half an hour ago. They're like king of the world, and then they get on the boat and they can't cast. Bro deserves a raise. And to that I say, bro could have also been restocking the thingamabobbers. Good morning, Degenerate Anglers, and welcome to Bend, the fishing podcast that relies solely on the Flex Seal family of products for everything from mending outboard fuel lines to turning any pair of pants into waders to making any live bait of soft plastic. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, uh, and I, I, <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. But I oh, do. I see. feel like I feel like I need to. I need to be the voice of reason here and 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 put out a little PSA. We have not picked up Flex Seal as a sponsor. Joe's not. Doing this out of obligation, this is not a no, hard that, sell. I I don't know where the flex seal is coming from. No, that's true. That's true. That that's accurate. However, I wouldn't mind picking them up as a sponsor, um, I because I'm about some flex seal. Matter <laughs> of fact, matter of fact, the best fly fishing trick I know revolves around it. You want to know what it is? Yeah. Clear flex seal, in my opinion, is the best sealant for foam flies ever. Clear flex yes. seal. Yes. So you didn't even know there was clear. You're not on the inside of the Flex Seal family of products, right? (laughs) But I learned this. (laughs) But I learned this from my bud Carl Harris at CGH Custom Tackle. You actually own some of his bugs. He sent us some, and I I gave them to you. I do. Um, And you guys should also, you guys listening, should check him out. But anyway, Carl figured out that clear Flex Seal like adds adorable shell, but true to its name, stays flexible when dry. And I haven't used anything else to seal a popper. Or a foam bug since, but really, right? Bonus tip, bonus tip. You have to buy the jar of brushable Flex Seal, right? Uh-huh. Not the spray. Uh-huh. And double bonus tip. Here's another bonus tip: pour it into a mason jar to store it because it's more airtight. Like the can huh. ends up not sealing yeah, yeah, after yeah. a while, right? Yeah. 
So pour it into a uh, ball mason jar, seal it up. Got a huge jar of the shit at my tying desk. No always. shit. I, it's great stuff. I, great stuff. I'm learning so much. The I mean, the vase thing is I I honestly, dude, I had no idea Flex Seal was even around anymore. I thought that oh, died. Come with, on. I thought it died with Billy Mays. I don't know. No, OxyClean died with Billy Mays. Billy I, Mays wasn't Flex Seal. <laughs> it's all the same to me. <laughs> I, I will say that sounds like a great tip, and it's definitely legit if Carl gave it to you because that dude makes he makes some sexy baitfish imitation yeah. streamers. He thinks that, outside the box, that yeah. dude with his patterns. Yeah, the the Montana trout definitely approve of those streamers he made. I have tested that out, and I'm I, he also got he also gave me some some wicked looking frog patterns that I'm I'm hoping to pin into some yep. bass face later this summer. But uh, even if you don't fly fish, which is fine, I happen to know who makes some wicked conventional frog lures. Oh, that's funny. So do I. Yeah. That would be 13 Fishing, who we're very proud to say sponsors this show. And while I'm not I'm not going to give up a ton of the goods so that I don't ruin the next season of B-Side Fishing, let's just say I put their trash panda hollow body frogs, both the regular traditional body and the popping models, to work mm-hmm. in Virginia recently, and the snakeheads responded extremely favorably. The trash pandas are tough frogs that can, they could, I mean, no, no kidding. They could take some serious abuse. I was very impressed by those. Yeah, frogs. snakeheads are more abusive than bass when it comes. Much to more so. A lot more lures. toothy. A little bit. Yeah, a lot more toothy. toothy. More, more yeah. bite pressure too. I think. And <laughs> I will say that that few things bring me as much joy as, as frog fishing. I haven't done it actually since last summer. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And I am hoping that's the theme you're going with for this episode because. <laughs> Just please, no. God, I hope it's not Flex Seal. <laughs> I hope that's not the no, whole show. It's not that either. Um, it's But it's actually, it's about flexing in general. See what I did oh, there, right? Yeah, and this yeah, topping, yeah. yeah, see, it's creative. Yeah. Uh, this topic has come up time to time. Uh, but this week, I think we're going to go all in on the various ways in which anglers flex. And we mm. all flex, even if we don't think we're flexing, which is sort of part <laughs> of the fun. Like, we're going to expose your subconscious flexing. Uh, like meta-flexing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. Well, I mean, you know, the obvious one, and I don't think this is where you're going, but there's the obvious flex. It's the dude who's crowing about, I catch the biggest fish. I catch the most oh, yeah. fish. Bro, look at me. And those guys are just assholes. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing you're going to get more nuanced, and we're not just going to talk about those guys all day because that would also suck. No, no, and and you're spot on, right? Because flexing over what you caught is just too obvious and kind of lame. Like one example, one of my favorite flexes um, is just simply being right about a lure fly. And I know for sure you get this because you were a guide, right? You're out with somebody that's struggling a bit and just like insistent on fishing a certain way. And you're like, hey, man, just look, just switch to this for a little bit. Just trust me. And you're right. Like that's a good flex. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is and because, good. because I'm at the point in my fishing, and I mean this, where I enjoy seeing the people I'm with catch fish as much as I enjoy catching fish, it's like a double win. Because I'm happy about their success, but I also just got to flex a little bit. Totally. So it's great. It's terrific. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, similar to that, I feel like the ultimate form of what you're talking about is is seeing a stranger, like a complete stranger you don't know on the water struggling while mm. you've got it oh, dialed. This, this is good. And yeah. then just going up to them unprompted <laughs> and hey, offering <laughs> advice. And like, yep. it's, it's the best because you get to be both magnanimous and kind of an egotistical ass at the same time, right? Like, yep. you, you are both the nice guy, but you just flexed on him. And there's also the opposite side, which used to happen sometimes while guiding, right? And I'd know 
I'd know that we had tied on exactly the right thing. I'd know what they were eating and how, and we're using the right thing. But the clients still weren't catching fish because they weren't listening and they weren't fishing mm-hmm. it right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'd get the, hmm, uh, do you think we should try something different? Oh, question. Oh. Mm-hmm. Right. And <laughs> and at that point, like I hated to do it, but I have to take the rod and then like hook three fish on three consecutive casts <laughs> and just hand it back and say, no, I think we should stick with that. I think we're good. That's a good one. That's great. I said, now another one I love, I also really love, and this sounds shitty, but it's true. I love catching fish behind somebody. Oh yeah. And and that might be the best flex of all. And uh, for me, at least like you, it's a scenario at least I don't end up in very often, and you wouldn't unless you're 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 kind of the guy that goes out looking to do this to prove a point. But every once in a while, right, you just unknowingly step into that scenario where someone is where you want to be, and you're watching them just going, they're not fishing that effectively at all. <laughs> and you don't push them out. You don't make a scene. You just bide your time close by, wait for them to give up the ghost, and just slide in and connect. And that's the thing of beauty. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. And you still don't comment or rub it in. You just keep to yourself, but you know they know, right? And like, oh, the la- I'm trying to think. The last time that happened to me, this was years ago. It was on a steelhead river in Ohio, and it was it was glorious. It was I, just glorious. Uh, you describe this as a rare occurrence, but this happens all the time, fishing out of drift boats on the popular uh, Good, good point. Here. Where you're like, fishing, yeah, I could see that. It's yeah. all the time. Like, that was that was the game. It still is the game. It's and jumping ahead of another boat, like rowing around another boat to get to the water before them is 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 that's yeah, a dick can't move. Do that. That's a no no. Can't do that. Cannot yep. do that. But there is nothing wrong with hanging back and just mowing someone else's lawn, as my my good guide buddy used to call <laughs> it. Uh, it's like it's the public yet quiet flex. Yep. And it's just it's satisfying. Yep. It's satisfying. Very. Uh, and, very much. And. and Despite the fact that I do like those more quiet, less low, more low key flexes, that's that's mm-hmm. that's more my style. Sometimes you got no choice; you just got to be overt about it. People from New York City and the boroughs, like out near where you are, they kind of already have that reputation. Like the Jersey Shore thing is all about overt flexing. Oh, you don't say! I think yeah. that's I think that's what the situation <laughs> majored in. That's right. <laughs> And and on that topic, all that like that that fact about that area makes the story we have for smooth moves this week extra sweet. This is the part of the show where we get guides and captains and shop workers and anyone else who makes a living in the fishing industry, and we bring them on and we let them bitch about dumb things their clients do. And today we are joined by Staten Island's native son, Captain Frank Crustelli. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? All right, joining us today on Smooth Moves, our buddy Captain Frank Crescitelli. What's going on, Frankie? Hey, Joe. How you doing? Good, good. It's good to see you. And uh, man, there's so much to set up about you. So you're you're a veteran captain in the New York City area, originally from Staten Island, right? Yep. Born and raised. Born and raised, and you've done. You've had a huge hand in conservation work uh, in the striper scene. You have TV show. Fin chasers, you're you're a man. You have you 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 have irons in many many fires. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the, like, weren't you also a mechanic? And there, there's oh, some yeah. kind of other business. I, I don't. You've done everything, man. Like there's, oh. I, I mentioned anything. Like oh yeah, yeah, I did that for a couple <laughs> years. <laughs> I did do a lot of different businesses. I was an auto mechanic by trade, and I had gas stations, repair shops, and that until we decided to have kids, and then we we figured that 
you know, we, somebody had to raise the kids, you know, so I got out of that business and it was changing dramatically, but yeah, we had used cars, rentals, <laughs> cellular phones. I was doing cellular phones since 1987. <laughs> oh man! Uh, then, All right. You figured you figured being a charter captain would give you more time with your family. Yeah. I bet, I bet well, that didn't really yeah. work out. <laughs> what happened is once the kids got into full time school, then I uh, actually went to a Tony Robbins seminar and I had to figure out like <laughs> what was I going to do, and and it and I decided. Yeah, man, I love fishing if I can make that a business, you know. And I signed up right there that Monday when I get out of the place. And I signed up my buddy Dino as well. He had no choice. I went to his house, dialed the phone number for the captain's <laughs> phone, put the phone in his hand. So that is oh, the best God. origin awesome. story well, you, you, you've, I've you've, ever heard. You, you've made it work. I mean, there's so many things. You also run the Manhattan Cup tournament, which I fished. Um, but yeah. on the actual like charter for hire, how many years have you been a, a captain for hire, man? So this year would be like 22 years. So okay. the last few years, not you know, only very special people because I've been focusing on the video sure. and TV stuff. And sure. the challenge in the beginning was just that. You want to take people fishing when it's good. But you also want to film when it's good, and it's hard to film even when it's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the camera yeah. comes on and the fish disappear. Uh, so, yeah, but, uh, you know, it was a time where I did like 160 trips a year for a bunch of years. Sure. I was doing six a week and grinding it out. And 75% of my business comes from Manhattan. So I would drive right. from Staten Island to, you know, 23rd Street, pick these people up. And then start to trip from there, you know, when market closed stuff, mostly afternoons. And then fly fishermen would come in the morning. And it was it was great when the fishing was great. And then not so great when the fishing was, <laughs> you know, tough. I always have so much respect for the salty guys because, like, unlike a river, the fish aren't always there every day. Right. Like, they could just not be there. But you've, so you do the fly thing, you do inshore, you also have spent a lot of time offshore. So I'm very curious with this smooth move, where are we going? Are we going inshore, Manhattan? Are we going offshore to the canyons? You know, knowing where you pull so many clients from that area, you got to have something good for us. I really hate to like try and correct people or like, put them in their place, like about if they're wrong, but sometimes they get on board with very strong opinions about you're from how Staten it's Island. Don't, don't, isn't that what you do if you're from Staten Island, put, correct people and put them in their place. Yeah. And it would be, you know, the, you got to remember like you're getting these guys that just left wall street a half an hour ago. They're making multi-million dollar deals, right? They're like King mm -hmm. of the world, you know, Matthew McConaughey beating on his chest and everything. <laughs> and then they get on the boat and they can't cast. <laughs> and I'm trying to help them, and it's making it worse. And then they're like, oh, no, you know, my rod and this and that. And I'm like, dude, you just got to shoot line. Just relax, chill out, you know, whatever. And so, you know, this one guy was really giving me a hard time. And we were having a hard time fishing. It, we were marking fish everywhere, but we could not hook up. So finally he goes, you know, you keep talking about these marking these fish. You know, that thing probably looks like that all the time. You know, for three hours, you've been saying, there's fish, there's fish. So I said, oh, you think that that's not working? He goes, yeah. I go, okay, oh, hold on a second. Reel them in. And everybody starts reeling. I start moving away before everybody really reeled their lines in, right? And my mate's looking at me, and I, I hit the throttle, and we're flying offshore now. We were right by Breezy Point, and I just I drive three miles straight out into the shipping <laughs> channel. And I stopped the boat, and everybody's looking at me like, what the hell is going on? 
So I told the guy, come here. They bring him over the sound. They said, you see, no fish. Now, if you want, I'll take you back to at least where the fish are, and maybe they'll start biting in there. And the guy was just like, oh, boy, okay. And just So then it's funny. On the, on the way back, I decided I'm going to check the Rockaway Reef because I already drove these guys already offshore. Right. <laughs> and I you swing well. back yeah. in a little bit. And I go, now you see, that's bait and fish on the machine. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, I got it. Like, you know, like I was rubbing his face. I wasn't rubbing his face. I was trying to show him this a little different. This is B and fish, like a little more ingredients, you know? And uh, so he's looking at his friend like, and he doesn't even touch a rod. And the guy who knows the least, you know, barely fished. Is, I go, take that little diamond jig and put it over and just, you know, jig it. And he catches an albie, and the guy was like so pissed off that you know <laughs> he didn't believe the whole program. But usually, guys go along with you know whatever you want to do. And I just want people to have fun. So like, if they want to sit there and drink beer and eat sandwiches and don't worry about fishing, that's fine. But you know, you usually got to balance it up. And the challenge is the market closes the same time every day. Doesn't care what time, what the tide is, what the wind is. You got to be back in four or five hours because then they're going to go to dinner after that. So you had a very small window to find fish every day. And it was interesting. Man. So you know? like a lot of your deal, like you were literally picking guys up in the south end of Manhattan, like in the financial district to fish when oh, the yeah. market closed between that and their fancy dinner. Yep. And their clients would never forget. Right. I mean, they could take you to how many hundred dollar steaks could these guys eat in their life? And they forget where they went, but they never forget if a guy takes some fishing and then takes them out to dinner. So that's how we built that whole thing around there. Like I know, I know you don't. You, you want everybody to have a good time. You're mellow. We, we've hung out. I, I know your program, but at the same time, I also know that sometimes as a captain, you got to flex a little bit. Oh yeah, because otherwise people aren't <laughs> going to trust you, and if they don't trust you, right, they're not going to catch fish because right. they're not going to listen to you. So every once in a while, you have to pull that power move to be like, oh really? Let yeah. me show you. Yeah, and then right. all of a sudden, like, oh, they believe you and they get a little more sheepish. And all of a sudden, they start catching fish. So nobody, well, not nobody. I never like doing that. I can tell you don't like doing it. But sometimes you have to do the flex if you want yeah. the day to work out. Did you get invited to all the dinners, all the power dinners? No. I drop them off. They go eat. And then I got to drive <laughs> 16 miles home, clean the boat. And then, you know, by then it's 11 o'clock. And, and then do a fly trip in the morning or something, you know? So... If people don't think it's hard work, man, it's hard work. Listen, don't be surprised if you hear more from Captain Frank on Bent down yep. down the road a piece. Or maybe, just maybe see him in season three of Das Boat, which mm. is in the works right now. Anyway, Frank, Frankie is so fun. Um, and he was actually telling us that, that in those days when he was guiding all the Wall Streeters, it wasn't uncommon for these guys to show up at the boat still wearing black wingtips and a suit, which is Ugh. funny because in their world, like that look alone is a flex. You right. know what I mean? But as soon as you're trying to pull it off on a striper boat, you're doing the opposite of flexing. Like you just look dumb. But he said yeah. that was very common. You know? Yeah. I really, I like that story for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I think it brings up, and, and this is true in my experience, like Frank was saying, most guides, like the good guides, people I consider good guides, they don't want to flex. Yeah, of course. Like the flex is the, it's the nuclear option that should only be used when all else fails. And the clients just won't listen to you or won't won't believe you. But 
you do have to pull that card when you're forced to. Ultimately, sure. you're the captain of the boat, and and if your crew, if your if your sports lose faith in you, that's a problem, and and, and you got to get that shit back one way or another. Sure, sure, but I mean, unfortunately, right? Too many charter guys um, use that business model, though. They just like that's stake what they everything. start out doing is is the flex instead of using it to fix a problem. Like that's how exactly. they go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They just stake everything on this over the top bravado about how they outfish everyone. And I know that works for some people. I'm the best fisherman on shore. Believe that. Believe that. No one can handle me. I haven't been making videos lately, but I'm still out here catching fish all the time. I catch them all the time. Believe that. I. It's unclear, however, whether it worked for the gentleman we recently discovered looking for a fishing buddy on Craigslist. I, I don't think it did. My guess is probably not. It, it, it did not. But please let us know <laughs> if you would have been sold on the skills up for grabs in this week's sale bin. Well, why did you put the head in the paper if you don't know what I'm getting at? Well, you, you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. So this week's sale bin item isn't exactly an item. In fact, it's not even for sale. Okay, this comes from it's not Craigslist. In a bin. It's not in a bin. You, yeah, you won't find it in a bin you or can't a put tub. It in a bin. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> really, really kind of losing the losing the thread here, but it makes sense. It'll make sense. It, it's going to make sense. Okay, and this comes from Craigslist, um, Philadelphia, uh, and it's it's from the barter section, which I have to admit, I I don't think I'd ever looked at until this came along. Nope. Right, I, I I'll be I didn't even know it existed until yeah. until this came up, and I bought you know I've bought a f- and sold things on Craigslist before mm-hmm. I've, I've I've done that, but never gone to the the barter zone, and <laughs> it it feels sketchy mm-hmm. like that feels sketchy to me. Mm-hmm. Buying and selling stuff, you know, you've done the Craigslist thing, like mm-hmm. buying and selling stuff with strange. It's already a little awkward. Right, it's it's fun when you're just scrolling through pics of stuff, and you're like, "Oh, I want exactly. that, and I want that." But then you got to actually meet up with those people, and it's weird. It can be not always. Sometimes it's fine, but sometimes it's weird. And I just imagine that the barter experience yeah. is is ten yeah. times worse. Oh yeah, and I, I haven't bought a lot of stuff off Craigslist, but the most recent purchase uh, was a tugboat shaped sandbox for my son. Right, and mm-hmm. I ended up in a not so good part of Philly. And while the person I was communicating with was like very clear and concise via email and text, I ended up dealing with like an old Polish lady that just pointed and never, like she never spoke to me. <laughs> Speaking of awkward. Like the, yeah. Like the yard was just full, like literally piled with beat up plastic playground equipment. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah. And it was, it was very strange. I got the boat though, you know. No, that does, it, it sounds strange, but. That was legitimately completely worth it because I've seen that tugboat sandbox. <laughs> that thing's fantastic. If if my kid actually knew that existed, he would be racking his little brain right now trying to figure out what he could trade for it because he well, would want it. I, I don't want to get off, but it's called the Tuggy. It's discontinued, and it's actually a hot item. It's a very coveted item, that sandbox. Oh. There's even people who have like filled it with foam and made little boats with trolling motors. There's like a whole <laughs> Tuggy culture that I'm now a part of. I get the Tuggy newsletter. Uh, anyway... It's uh, it's not up for barter. So anyway, Clearly but I, I, I yeah, it's, it's I was recently item. yeah, I was recently scrolling through the barter section of the Central Jersey Craigslist because I'm I I became curious because right. of this this post we got, and it's trippy, man. I quickly realized this is where the weird deviant shit now goes down on Craigslist since they got rid of the blatant you know click here for weird deviant shit yeah. page. Yeah. You know yeah. Um. So just like a few quick examples, and this is. J- 
this is 10 minutes of scrolling. This wasn't like hours of searching. Um, there was a post offering 100 ladies handbags that read, $100 takes all the bags in the picture. Maybe barter one or two of them. Let me know what you're good at. Ooh. I mean, dude. Ooh, yeah, that is that is a question that I, <laughs> I'm, I can almost guarantee I would never answer that question if it was asked to me by some random dude on the internet. Let exactly. me know what you're good at. Ugh. Yeah, that's icky. Yeah, dude, that's it's icky. icky. It's icky. And then there was a guy uh, trying to trade a painting of George Washington for a laundry <laughs> list of items that included steel <laughs> ISO shipping containers, mushroom production equipment, a drone with an HD <laughs> camera, uh, sliding compound miter saw, or a Fitbit smartwatch. That's such so, a weird, like, random. It's whacked out. It's whacked out. I, yeah. I don't know, man. This just talking about this is making me think I should. I'm not sure if this is making me think I should spend more time checking out the barter section or if I have made the right choice yeah. in avoiding it. It, it, could, it could really go either way. But uh, listener Nick Dombrowski, he's obviously chosen that he should hang out there, that it's worth it, because yep. he sent us a post titled Four to Five Hour Fishing Trip for Barter. And I think we got to say that the, the gentleman that posted this is no Jerry the Canoe Salesman. No. When it comes to the wordsmithing. No. But no, it's no. still pretty good. Mm-hmm. And to give the guy credit, at least he knows how to post a photo. And in this case, <laughs> he chose a shot of a largemouth bass, a, a, a very, I'd say a, a, a relatively impressive largemouth bass reproduction mount. So mm-hmm. let's begin. And just so everyone understands my yelling tone, the post was written in <laughs> all caps. It's got to be read this way because that's how yeah. I perceive it as well. So. Yes. <laughs> I will trade a four to five hour fishing trip on my boat on the waters of Penn Warner. We will pitch lures like spinners and crankbaits at the docks or shoreline structures, slow fish plastics or jigs, troll lures for bass, pike and pickerel, whatever you like. You bring your favorite tackle, lures, a cooler of food and drink if you feel you need it. And away we go. (laughs) That's how I hear it. I know. So before, before we go on, I just got to add... I actually live right near Penn Warner, and it's a it's a bunch of private lakes that I actually think are owned by a waste management company. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but cool. they're they're stocked, and you have to have a membership to fish it. So I just want everyone to understand that the pot is actually being sweetened here by this being private water. However, there are these huge lakes. There's also plenty of natural you know fish reproduction, and there's also a shitload of members. So even though it's private, they get pounded. I've fished it a handful of times, and what I'm basically saying is just because it's private, it's not automatic. Like, the fishing can still suck there. So it's mm-hmm. not that – the pot is not sweet that, that much. Right. Yeah. So let's go on. I am bartering my time, boat, and knowledge. I have been out and caught bass and pike already, so it only gets better as the spring progresses into summer. We would probably start 6 or 7 a.m. until whenever. I am not a professional fisherman or a guide of any sorts. I am just a fisherman of over 55 years with many trophies to my name looking to go fishing. <laughs> so you just explained like it's private water, but it's not necessarily that good. And right. he he tells us you can't use his rods and reels. <laughs> and you're on your own for lunch if if you think hunger is going to be an issue for you. You think it might, you, you might get hungry. If you're it. human, you handle that. Exactly. <laughs> But but there's also there's there's a contradiction here uh-huh. in that he says you'll start at six or seven a.m. until quote whenever, but if you look at the title of the post, 
then you'd be done by noon at the latest. And all <laughs> the very so latest. my take, the way that I interpret this is that the the length of the day, the duration you get to fish will be solely based around whether or not he likes you. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think this this is a good comparison to Jerry, because like Jerry, this guy he, he's looking for a friend. Mm-hmm. He just he just can't say that. He 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 he's acting like he needs a little something in return when he really just wants a fishing buddy. Yep. But here's the closing. We'll finish it up. Just looking to trade a day of fishing to see what people offer. I can only take one person as that's what my membership rules dictate. There will be no money exchanged. I charge nothing. Just a barter of something. Let me know if interested and let me know what you have to trade. <laughs> it's, it's so vague, right? So I, what is the value of this trip? And I'm, I'm, I'm really asking, like, at least... I don't know. The, at least the guy with the George Washington painting stood firm that it was worth 4K, four grand, yep. which is why he felt he could ask for a drone and a bandsaw. <laughs> but like, dude, how do you even approach this? Like, base it around what? A, a guide's know. day rate? That doesn't seem... No, right. he's not guiding like, you. Yeah, what's offensive? If I said I'll give you a book of Burger King coupons and a case of Natty Light, are we good? I, I don't know. A weed whacker <laughs> that needs some TLC? What's acceptable? I, I don't, don't know. know. Wouldn't know how to approach it. I don't. I mean, my my gut in a situation like this is because this is how I was raised. I, I, I think of food, right? I would offer a nice <laughs> lunch, but the dude has already made it clear <laughs> that he thinks needing to eat or drink while fishing is a sign of weakness. So <laughs> exactly. I don't think that's the angle that you want to take. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I got a sh- I got a shitload of hats. I'm I'm sure you do too. Maybe Many. like I'll give I'll give you five hats. I don't know. I think. <laughs> I think the only solution we have is that you you live out there, dude. You gotta test this and see what it'll take. Maybe ah. you could go, dude. You, you, here, you go big. You offer him like a new thirteen rod and reel setup, and just blow his mind because you know he's gonna take that. And then, but the caveat is that you get to record <laughs> the whole day for the podcast. I dare you. I dare you to do this. Oh, dare. Huh? Wow. Like what? Like what? Like double dog? Triple dog? I think, I, I, this is double dog. This is double dog territory. Okay. Because don't tempt me with a good time. That could actually be a complete nightmare. Are you familiar with the film Tusk? Anyway. Vaguely. Vaguely. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe. I'll consider it because it could also be great. Anyway, Nick, uh, thanks for this. And to everyone else out there, don't overlook those barter pages. <laughs> clearly, we are missing out on some gems. Dare I say, maybe even the better, creepier gems. And when you find something juicy, shoot that link to bent at themediator.com. Well, that guy has plenty of trophies to his name, and I'm always looking to add another trophy to my name for supplying the most poignant fish-related news stories. So here comes that weekly flex of internet searching ability we call fish news. Fish news! That escalated quickly. Quick follow-up on last week's sailbin segment when we made fun of the explosive hook fish net, which is uh. like a castable <laughs> throw net with bait in case you missed it. Uh, a couple of you sent links to YouTube videos, which sent me down this rabbit hole that I, mm. I probably should have explored before. We did the segments would have been have good. We had, have we done an oopsie? Have we had an oopsie? We might have. We might have. <laughs> uh, I will I will keep it short. Long story short, uh, it turns out this product is, is, is actually incredibly popular just in, in Southeast Asia, not here. And over there, oh, okay. they call, they're, they're, they're commonly called spring bomb nets. 
I, I actually watched one video where there's this tiny little pond and the banks of this pond are just lined like shoulder to shoulder with people and all of them. Every single one has a spring bomb net at the end of their, their spinning rod line. All of them. So it turns out if you're a, a subsistence fisherman in Southeast Asia targeting tilapia and cichlids in your local pond, these are highly effective and they make perfect sense, right? Some of these videos actually feature Cambodian kids who, if I'm being honest, they, they clearly live in poverty and they're, they're using spring bomb nets to like help feed their families. And what I can't figure out is how they self-film their adventures or upload them to YouTube, but <laughs> such is the world that we live in, right? Like YouTube channels are cheaper than shirts now, it seems. Anyway, the whole thing made me feel like kind of an ass, dude, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, like okay. I made fun of something that's like feeding hungry people and we're fortunate enough to live. Like we're fortunate enough to not need spring bomb net, right? We don't need that. Okay. Here's what I'm going to say, though. I think like where we failed was that we, we said it doesn't work. Right? right, we couldn't figure out how it would work, but clearly it does. Right, so does. okay, fine, we screwed that part up, but like we found it on a site that was marketing it to U.S. anglers. So like we're still allowed to. I don't. I don't feel that bad. Like, no, uh, no, you know. I'm not losing sleep. But I no, and I don't think I don't think these are going to catch on in the U.S. anytime soon. But they certainly have a market. We just missed it. No. Plus, you send them kids a case of trout magnets, they'll forget all about their nets. <laughs> they'll light them up. Light them up. Anyway, speaking, them. Of, speak, speaking of feeling like uh, an ass, I actually have sort of a correction this week. Um, it's, it's actually not really a correction, but more proof that I'm just somewhat slow. You did that story about the fishing tourney with old Walter the smallmouth, right? Yep. And it was like, if you caught it, you got $100,000, but you had to catch it over a weekend, and then the prize dropped to $1,500. And I, and I said this was shady because, like, this marina has 100k sitting around to give it's weird and a bunch of people wrote in and were like hey dimwit like you take out an insurance policy for something like that like really when people yeah like when people are putting up a bunch of money as a cash prize where it's like a competition like that apparently the insurance payment is less than the prize value and the insurance company is just hoping someone doesn't win Huh. So they're like, no, of course they don't have a hundred grand sitting around. They have fifteen hundred dollars sitting around, which is why the prize dropped to fifteen hundred dollars <laughs> after the weekend. But that once once it was said, huh. it made total sense in my head yeah. and uh, reiterated why I could never own my own business because nope. like finances are lost on me. I do not understand <laughs> we, such grown up things. My head my, my head never went there. But so thanks for that, everybody. Um, final thing before we get in the news. Uh, you know those fish eating fish eating fish t-shirts and hoodies we've just been cramming down your throats. Uh, mm. we've decided to give one of each away. You know why? Because we're cool like that. It's true How about that. Yeah, we are. We are. We are cool like that, and we don't need a special occasion to nope. give you shit. No, we so don't. for one week and one week only, kind of similar to how we've done giveaways in the past. Those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags are worth more than stickers. That's right. So to qualify, we're looking for the, the pictures using those tags posted between today, which is June 25th, and next Friday, which is July 2nd. In other words, you got to do this between now and when the next episode airs. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, make us laugh, gasp, wince, cry. I don't know, but we'll pick one of our favorites, and Miles and I will post the winner on Saturday morning, July 3rd, on our Instagram accounts, and somebody is going to get a fresh fish-eating-fish tea and hoodie, and you will look sharp. Mm. It's mm. like a it's like a cornucopia of degeneracy. <laughs> much much like this show. All right. Moving on to fish news. Uh quick reminder that this is a competition. Joe and I do not know what the other is bringing to the table and we are as always competing for the love, affection and validation 
of our patron saint of all things auditory, Phil, the engineer, <laughs> who will declare one of us a winner and relegate the other to a week of self-doubt and questioning of life choices. Joe's got the lead this week. Yeah, and if I win, Phil gets a, a hoodie, and if you win, he gets the T-shirt. So there's more incentive mm, for me low. to take the it's, it's, it's a light. It's a, it's a nice weight, the hoodie. Uh, anyway, so here's where I'm going to start. Uh, this comes from our Canadian listeners. Several of them alerted me to this story. And it's pretty interesting and sort of speaks to like fish perceptions by country and region. So here in the U.S., of course, bass are the king dog, number one most coveted fish in the U.S. And I'm mainly talking large mouths there, but we love a nice small mouth here as well. Well, certain conservation groups in New Brunswick, Canada, flipping hate small mouths right now. And they hate them so much that they're willing to poison the famed Miramichi River to get rid of them. Okay. Oh, I've so, heard about this. This is yeah, this is, this an is, a, this is a big deal. Yeah, 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 right. So, smallmouth, just so we're all on the same page, um, are not native to New Brunswick. They were first found in Miramichi Lake in 2008, and it's believed that they were illegally stocked by bucket biologists. Somebody thought mm-hmm. these would be great to catch here and put them in. So, this story comes from CBC News, and it says. A growing population of smallmouth bass in Miramichi Lake, Lake Brook, and a portion of the southwest Miramichi River has been threatening Atlantic salmon as well as brook trout native to the waters, salmon conservation groups say. Smallmouth bass threaten salmon and trout by taking over their food and habitat, said Neville Crabb, a spokesman with the Atlantic Salmon Federation. They can also threaten other native species around them. So the federal government has officially greenlit the eradication of the smallmouths by spraying the fish-killing pesticide Rotenone starting this August. And, of course, this got my attention because I know that the Atlantic salmon is to the Canadian Maritimes what stripers and largemouth are to the U.S. And, mm-hmm. I mean, look, the Miramichi isn't some little no-name trickle, right? Like, this is big, hallowed water. And naturally, the first thing I thought was, how are you going to Rotenone these areas and not have it affect the salmon? Because, and this is directly from the story, the product will kill the vast majority of fish in the waters being treated. According to an authorization document from Fisheries and Oceans Canada, the death and decomposition of fish will modify the food web, the fish habitat, ecological structure, and the nutrient input of the waters. But uh, as it turns out, Right, So some of the salmon conservation groups are pushing the hardest for this and actually wanted it to happen last summer. But it got roadblocked by the government, partially because a lot of people with waterfront homes on Miramichi Lake were just worried about dealing with piles of decomposing fish and their kids swimming in the lake and such. And residents are still complaining about all this. Some have been told they'll have to avoid the lake for several days, but the spraying is happening. They'll start on August 15th. And um, some waters may actually receive a second dose in September. Now, the salmon conservation groups are participating in the spraying of 17.2 kilometers. And according to the story, to mitigate the number of Atlantic salmon affected by the rotenone, salmon will be captured and held elsewhere prior to releasing the pesticide. Barriers will also be installed to prevent salmon from entering the area being sprayed. Those barriers will be removed once a water purifier has deactivated the pesticide, allowing salmon and trout to migrate back in. Crab said the rotenone will not be at concentrations lethal enough to destroy all fish in the water. Brown bullhead catfish and golden shiner, for example, are expected to survive. So 
The Salmon folks are saying, yeah, this is harsh, but, you know, look, people come to New Brunswick for Atlantics. They are the biggest economic driver. They are what people expect to catch in these rivers above all else. A growing smallmouth population would drastically alter the ecosystem. So this is what has to be done. But this is where it sort of gets a little bit sticky, right? The New Brunswick Aboriginal People's Council, on the other hand, is saying, hey, listen, we're already catching smallmouths in areas outside the ones you guys are saying has them. They've already flushed the system. They're not confined. So this is all going to do more harm than good. They're saying, you know, you're, you're forgetting about insects and birds, stuff like that. Like, is that even being considered? Um, to further back up their claim, the story cites a 2009 Department of Fisheries and Oceans report that says, if these smallmouths get into the southwest Miramichi, eradication efforts will be pointless. And they're there. They were first spotted there uh, in that section of the river in 2019. So it's a whole dilly of a pickle here, but they are moving on with the spraying. Oh, that that's a that is a tangled web. All right, uh, first first is a procedural question. They have a way of of moving the salmon out. I would love to know what that is, but they did not die, like they did not go into that. That, I was thinking the same thing. The piece that doesn't seem to fit for me, because if you have a way of moving the salmon out, why wouldn't you have a way of capturing the smallmouth? Like, I would think those would be one and the same. Exactly. And uh, if I had to guess, like, they know that there's going to be death there that they don't want. Like, I don't know how you could possibly get them. You're not going to get them all. You're not. You know, so I don't know, man. To me... I, I definitely see both sides of this, and, and I know how ravenous smallmouth can be, although it's ironic because yeah. I live in a place where, like, the smallmouth fishing has really tanked. You know what I mean? Like, these big, aggressive fish that take over everything. So it's just funny to see it sort of both ways, but it just comes back to that, like, mentality of we are salmon country. Salmon, 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 whatever you have to do to protect salmon. Having spoke to some some people in this area in the past, I know that there's, there's like, significant concern over smallmouth and pike being right. in those waters and 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 having a negative impact on on the brook trout and the salmon and both both of which are are, are fish that are that are experiencing declines anyway and they don't need right. any more problems right so right. i get it i understand the issue at hand i'm not sold on this mitigation effort it kind of seems like too little too late and it yeah. might have cascading effects that the people aren't aren't thinking about you know what i mean agreed i mean 2008, like that would have been the time to to do something drastic when they first found them in this lake, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. But uh, that's sort of how bureaucracy works. And I also like to play devil's advocate, you want to do enough preliminary research to understand what you're doing and and try and think about the, the, the consequences that come from that. So I hope that's what they were doing and they figured all those things out. And that's why it took this long. If that's the case, then maybe they know more than we do. I, but I'm 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 skeptical. I have some skepticism, but I don't I don't feel like I know enough to really like make a firm declaration. But it seems like this one this one the ship has sailed or this smallmouth has swum. <laughs> I did I and I completely agree with that. And again, like there's there's no way to really know, but it just takes you back to rivers in general. Like how many rivers have you fished where somebody's like, Well, all the brown trout are in this stretch, but then other people are like, No, 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 no. They're no, way no, no. down here. Yeah, yeah. Like they're 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 here too. And there's some here and there's some there. So just in my in my opinion, you especially when you're dealing with moving water still water a little less. It's, you can be like, well, all the smallmouth are here. No, no, no. If they're there, they, most they're of them the might system. be there. Yeah, if most of them might be there. But rest assured, 
they're already so I don't I don't see how this works. I really yeah. don't. The odds of this killing every smallmouth and and wiping this problem out, I think, is slim to none. I, I think I think you're sadly probably right. And and it ties a little bit into my first story, which also has to do with like a, a scaling and growing problem that, that seems to be booming exponentially and uh and and managers really grasping at whatever they can find to try and keep things under control and and put the, the genie back in the bottle. As you're likely aware, coral reefs are kind of a big deal. They're yeah. they're kind of they're kind of important. <laughs> they're they're the, the primary protective barriers that shield coastlines from waves and storms and erosion. They're also the most abundant marine ecosystems on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They only cover about two percent of the ocean floor, but they house at least a quarter of marine life, which is pretty freaking amazing if you think about it. And yeah. so my point is basically, if you like fish, and I'm guessing that you do, you should probably care about coral reefs. They, that should be a thing that matters to you. I agree. Uh, and, and, and one thing I should clarify, coral and reefs, not the same thing. They're related, but they're not. Reefs can refer to any hard structure that forms an oceanic barrier. But most naturally occurring reefs are the result of coral. Coral are these tiny anemone-like organisms and they, they secrete calcium carbonate, which is a hard substance that they live in. And that's what builds natural reefs. Right. So basically, to, to, to sum this up, you need the coral animals to both grow and maintain natural reefs, right? Because without the, without the coral animals themselves, the, the reefs, they get broken and eroded, and then they're gone pretty fast. Yeah, like basically like the dead shells left over don't do anything for you. It's got to exactly. be a living, breathing system for it to matter. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, they, they matter for a little while, but not for very long. You need right. you need the whole thing. You need the animal there to keep things up, right? Yep. And as you may also be aware, I'm sure you are, coral's kind of struggling right now. It's got, you know, you got warming oceanic temperatures and, and higher acidity, and, and those are making coral colonies all over the world look like, they kind of look like the, the bison herds standing near Western train lines in the 19th mm-hmm. century, just mm-hmm. knocking over. It's not good. But just in case that analogy is not ominous enough, a new form of bacterial infection with the extremely literal name stony coral tissue loss disease was discovered on the east coast of Florida in 2014 and is now spread across the state and into the Caribbean. And it is real bad. Over 95% of Florida's coral reef has been affected. The disease spreads quickly, and once a colony shows signs of infection, it usually dies within weeks or months. The causes... Oh, that's fast. And, yeah, it's real fast. Damn. The, the causes and origins of this disease remain unknown, but we do know that it's killing off star, brain, pillar, flower, and maize corals primarily, uh, all the way from northern Florida to Costa Rica. And, and those are the types of corals that contribute most to reef building and maintenance, like the big mm-hmm. structures. Those are the mm-hmm. ones that build the big structures that we like. Stony coral tissue loss disease can sometimes be stopped by applying amoxicillin to the affected corals, but doing that at scale is just not like it's just not realistic. Yeah, right? we you know, we we had a story a while ago. Remember about the uh, the 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 treating the bacteria? Um, what was it? Treat? They were trying to figure out how they could like treat coral reefs similarly with like, uh, and we couldn't figure out how to scale it. I don't remember the details right now. <laughs> I, I feel like it had something I, to do with Greek yogurt. I don't know. Oh. I remember, yeah, yeah, it was like a probiotic <laughs> thing. Yeah, this probiotic, is, that's what I was looking for, probiotic. Yeah, yeah, probiotics for, for coral. Yeah, this is this is kind of similar, except instead of trying to help them grow, it's trying to prevent them from dying. 
Yes. Uh, and it was the same thing. Like, you can't. I'd give him a shot of both. One, two. Boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just like when you were 20. But right. I think the, <laughs> like, the, the point is that, like, the amoxicillin is not going to solve this. So the Florida Wildlife Commission, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, and other nonprofit partners recognized the severity of this disease and the enormity of what could be lost if all these corals succumb to it. So in 2018, they initiated this program where they, they took samples uh, of the highly susceptible corals from around all the state's reefs, and they transplanted them to inshore coral farms and aquariums across the country, right? And the idea of this is that they're, they're creating, uh, they're basically trying to ensure that these local corals would not be completely eradicated, right? Right. So, and the hope being that like later on, that these specimens could be used to repopulate like future reefs in Florida. Wow. See what I'm saying? So last week, those same groups announced that they, they had successfully planted 1,152 coral colonies at 24 different sites from Jupiter to Key West from those stocks that were grown and, and maintained in coral farms and aquariums. According to FWC, the purpose of this project is to determine the fate of corals that are susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease when outplanted across Florida's coral reef, where the disease is still present but no longer found in epidemic proportions. The knowledge gained during the study will pave the way for future expansions in the restoration of disease-susceptible corals. All right, hold on. The, the language that they use there is important. Okay. No one's claiming victory or that there's a solution here, right? This project will help figure out what happens when affected corals get replanted in dead zones where the disease has already like ravaged and dwindled. A spokesperson for the Department of, of Environmental Protection said, understanding where and when it is safe to start outplanting species that are susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease again is a major first step in restoring the resilience of Florida's coral reef. Now, he said first step. All those corals they planted might just get reinfected and die again, or some might survive. Either way, that's going to be useful information moving forward. But while most of the susceptible corals in the affected areas got infected with the disease and died, certain individuals survived, suggesting that those individuals have some kind of resistance. And earlier this month, the Florida Aquarium announced that they had successfully crossbred rescued brain corals with wild brain corals that resisted infection. In a press relief, the aquarium said, quote, the hope is that corals produced using this technique will be more resilient to future disease outbreaks and will help restore the Florida reef tract. Point is, not all hope is lost, at least not yet. Right? The, the use of coral farms as both genetic seed banks to preserve the global diversity and, and, and like places to develop strains that are more resilient to disease, acidity, and heat is probably like the most promising technology that we have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, much like those, those replanted corals in Florida last week, these are all possibly good steps. Like this might help. And, and that's important because if global coral reefs collapse, which is like a super real possibility with all the things going on, we're in a lot of trouble. And, and like what's going on in Florida and these other groups like Coral Vita, 
based in the Bahamas. Essentially, what they're trying to do is turbocharge coral evolution to stay ahead of the rapid changes happening in ocean ecosystems right now, which from like a, an objective standpoint is just interesting and cool. But from a personal standpoint, it offers this glimmer of hope in an otherwise totally dismal trajectory. And so I've just been following all of this. Uh, dude, it's fascinating, and like you have to applaud all of that. And there, there's certainly there's a glimmer of hope in that, right? Like that, that's a very hopeful thing. But also, like looking at it from from a, like a realist perspective, right? Because I that's just what I do. So like this, this bacteria can kill off a reef in weeks or months. Like not you, a whole reef, a colony. A colony, okay. But like just looking at it from a timeline. So if this works, that's great. But like, how long would it? Truly, like maybe you don't know, but like how long would it take to repopulate that and like have no that looking looking like like nothing ever happened? And it'll probably it'll never be the same. Right. Right. Things have changed. But the idea is to maintain as much of that genetic diversity of different corals as possible and try and maintain what what keep it at a healthy ecosystem. And yeah. stay ahead of all these different changes coming in between acidity and warming and Bacteria. There are all these different things happening to coral populations all over the world. And the hope is that this, this farming technique is going to do a couple things. One, keep that diversity alive when parts of the ocean just go dead. And also give them a chance to figure out what sorts of strains might survive those unique changing conditions, hopefully, and replant them. The timeline on that, no one knows. It's just yeah, no, and I, and I know there's no answer. I'm just like supposing out loud. It's like it's great we can do that, but like I just wonder, like how would that translate to a mile of reef, like fully restored? You know, yeah. how long would like will we see that? Will our kids see that? You know, so a mile, yes, just, the whole thing. No, maybe, maybe our kids, maybe. Well, maybe I don't know, I don't know, but look, I'll say. If things like we need we need as many people to care about things like this um, as they care about the TikTok video that I'm going to talk about. That would about be great. Wouldn't next, that be so great? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be amazing? I'd call uh, that a win. <laughs> <laughs> O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. 
They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. So I actually hate to admit it, but this story um, might force me to rethink previous statements about refusing to get on TikTok. Mm. And this is, you just you just gave us a very good weighty story about real life things. I've done no such thing here. There is not nearly as much value in this story, but it is a fun one. Um, and it, it, it while it is fun, it also makes me question our society, which I always enjoy doing. So yeah. anyway, uh, this comes from the website of North Country Public Radio, headlined, Fishing for Customers Catching a Phenomenon. Okay. I don't know if you heard Ooh. anything about this. So... I'm going to set this up, right? So I'm like paraphrasing the story. So an owner of a local toy store in Saranac Lake, New York, he's, he's crossing an intersection in town, and he spots a dollar on the sidewalk. He reaches down to pick it up, and of course, the dollar is magically whisked away. So he follows the dollar into Blue Line Sports, which is a fly shop. And he realized he'd just been pranked when Ryan Baker, a fishing guide with Adirondack Trout Fitters who works at Blue Line Sports, said... Well, come on in, sir. How can I help you? While holding a rod with the dollar dangling from the end. Now, look, that's the oldest trick in the book, right? Absolutely. Like do- a dollar on a string. Like, this is this is not new, okay? Well, that day, Baker and his roommate, Reed Mason, who's also a fishing guide, punked more than a dozen people with the old dollar bill trick. And I have to say... Like this is such a fly shop kid thing to do. Oh god, isn't it? yeah. I could I could see the conversation right, right, that led up like, to this. Yeah. So like most of the time you walk into a fly shop and kids just like, you know, playing Mario Kart or like tying more squirmy worms or whatever. There's a lot of downtime. You yeah. know, there's a lot of downtime. So and the manager I'm, comes in and is like, What well, sweep something? <laughs> Clean up exactly. window. I don't know. Exactly, exactly. So I'm down with this as as a way to occupy time and drum up a little extra business, which they did. They did with this little trick. Uh, matter of fact, Baker himself said, we just figured let's keep fishing. We're always fishing. <laughs> so I put a dollar bill on the line and put it out on the sidewalk, right? So that's all That's all cute and ha-ha funny. But Mason had been filming all the reactions to the prank, and he compiled a bunch into a single clip set it to the SpongeBob SquarePants theme song, and posted it on TikTok. And this is from the story. Mason's TikTok account had something like 50 followers before this video went viral, according to Baker. Overnight, he gained more than 1,900 followers. His cell phone was flooded with notifications. Eventually, he had to shut off notifications, according to Baker. Quote from Baker, it was constant. He showed me. He was like, dude, every time I refresh my feed, it's another hundred, another hundred, another hundred. 
Every second, he would refresh his feed. So within 24 hours, the video racked up more than 1.6 million views. Wow. Okay. Now, first, good for you guys. Like, that's yeah. that's awesome, right? Um, and they said it absolutely translated over the next couple of days in, into more bodies in the shop, which is also awesome. I'm happy for those guys, right? But the part that gets me um, is that, like, that's the thing that would get 1.6 million views because again, hell, the dollar bill on a string thing has been around since paper money was invented, I think. Like I fell for this on the boardwalk in Jersey when I was 10 and got laughed at by a bunch of kids smoking cigarettes and napalm death t-shirts. So <laughs> I just I, I just I just can't believe that the dollar bill on a string thing still has that kind of juice in 2021. Like people don't even carry dollars anymore. Like if it's more than 10 bucks, I char I charge that shit. Um, so, of course, the post was also lit up with comments. Here's just a couple. Uh, bro deserves a raise. And to that, I say, similar to what you just said, maybe bro could have also been restocking the thingamabobbers. You know what I'm saying? So He like, could have been, but I, I think this but, was a better use of his time, this, really. This, in this case, it was a better use of his time, for sure. Then another one was like, honestly, I'd buy something. And like that's great for the shop if it's true. But like, would you? Like, if you tricked me into a health food store, I wouldn't be like, ha, you got me. And while I'm here, give me a bag of them kale chips. So, you know, anyway, like, well played, boys. And I think it's fair to say that the TikTok algorithm is kind of wide open right now. Like, people have said that to me since the TikTok commentary. They're like, dude, the algorithm's wide open. I don't, so I don't know. Maybe it's time to jump on that. But I thought this was a, a, a fun little story. Good, good for that fly shop. I give props to both of those those guides <laughs> who were clearly bored, and I hope their manager recognized that what he might have thought was a waste of time and they should have been restocking or cleaning actually turned into something more valuable. So hopefully yeah. people well, are thinking about that, like, oh, maybe we should give these kids some some marketing responsibilities. Yeah, and, and, and I'll tell you, they're like, smart. I, I also feel like the the dollar bill trick, like, um, I knew somebody who did it with a $10 bill once in college and ended up like almost getting beat down. Like some yeah. people don't appreciate that trick. No. You got to watch that one. That yeah. easily just turn into, you know, a knuckle sandwich. So and the other thing I'll say um, is that uh, <laughs> it's it's possible that the reason that people came chasing after that was because they were trying to figure out what it was. <laughs> what is that that fluttery green thing I see on the ground and where did it come from? It's um, like a Bitcoin I can touch. Yeah. <laughs> Where, whereas that story covers uh, a, a part of human culture where everything is maybe vapid and has no consequences. The one I'm going to talk about is, is purely consequence. And I got to say, uh, this one really pisses me off. Oh, this one, this one grinds really your gears, grinds your gears really grinds my gears. All right. Couple weeks ago, Oregon department of fish and wildlife sent out a news release in regard to a series of steelhead poaching incidents that occurred last winter. So Oregon DFW, they use fish traps to capture migrating steelhead so that they can harvest the milt and the eggs from these fish and then raise smolt in state hatcheries, right? And then release the smolt back into the rivers and keep steelhead around. Okay. One of the places they do this is an area of Woodward Creek, which is a, a tributary of the South Coquille River. And that, that area is closed to the public and not easily accessible. That's why they do the trapping there. Biologists set the traps, and then they rely on local volunteers to check them and, and, and say, like, hey, there's, you got some fish in there. Go check them. Right. The, the biologists then remove the, the fish, and, and they spawn them. But last winter, they ran into a problem. According to district biologist Mike Gray, 
we would get a call from a volunteer saying there were six or seven fish in a trap. Then when we got there, the trap was empty, or there was only one fish in it. We found evidence that the trap had been damaged, so we knew someone was getting in there. And this went on for weeks, right? They'd get calls saying, oh, fish are in the traps, and they'd come up empty-handed. Eventually, troopers set up surveillance cameras and caught three individuals on video the first night they did it. Those individuals and possibly others continued to return to raid the traps. One of them noticed the cameras, stole one, shot another out with his rifle, but he didn't get all the cameras. And so far, that individual, Kane M. Horner, is the only one of of the poachers to have been identified. And fish traps weren't the only places where wild steelhead theft occurred in the area last year. Have you ever heard of broodstock boxes? Uh, no, I mean, I know what broodstock is. I've never heard yeah. of a broodstock box. No, I had neither. So uh, this, this one's new to me. Apparently this is something ODFW does. They, uh, they set these boxes in rivers near popular fishing areas and the anglers can like, if you catch a steelhead, right. You can release it into that box and then let ODFW know like, Hey, I got a fish in the box for you. Interesting. Got right? it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And so anglers were doing this, and they were calling them in, and the biologists would show up, no fish in the box. Right? Oh, so, so, so these, these were also so getting raided. Ah, Biologists ultimately had to resort to netting a bunch of the, the creeks and the rivers in that area to get enough steelhead to maintain their numbers. And, and that practice is both expensive and it's detrimental to the ecosystem and the steelhead. It's just a bad deal. It's not what they want to do. That's why they started doing the boxes in the first place. Now, I got to say, I am not, I'm not in favor of raising steelhead in hatcheries and releasing them in the wild because hatchery fish have a, a, a sub. Sure. Hatchery fish have a some negative impact on wild sure. fish recruitment and survival. And it's a complicated topic with a lot of tension and there are valid concerns on all sides. And I'm not going to get into all of that here because that's not the point. The point is when I first read this story, I thought maybe this was like an Ed Abbey monkey wrench gang style insurgency by wild steelhead activists. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if that were the case, if that were the case, I would not condone these actions, but at least like I could understand them. Yeah. It's right? like, you, if, okay. If, you have, you have a cause of some kind. At right. Least. Like you have a right. belief. I get and it. And that's where yeah. I, what I first thought. And so I'm like, okay, yeah. if these are, if these are like wild fish vigilantes and they're breaking in fish traps and broodstock boxes and they're setting the fish, like they're setting the fish free as a way of increasing wild production and sabotaging the hatchery program. So they can't get their numbers. Like I, I, I see that as idealistic if misguided. But the end of this story is that ODFW caught the one suspect identified on camera while he was illegally fishing in a section of the river that's closed to allow steelhead to spawn unmolested. Yeah. So that wasn't the answer. No. They're just dirt bags. Yes. They're not vigilantes. They're just despicable humans with no regard for fish. And they were just breaking into those traps and boxes to steal steelhead for themselves. Uh, the, The first arrest went down in February. And ODFW just sent out this press release, just like just recently, which to me that suggests the investigation is stalled, and they're right. they're, they're talking about it now because they're like, "Hey, anybody, come forward with information because we want to catch these other people." And I just i I can't wrap my head around the sense of entitlement that a person would have to have to do something like this. But I don't I don't know like. <laughs> They didn't just steal from the hatchery. 
They stole from so they stole from, from all of us. Every, everybody. Everyone. Everybody. Yeah. They, they they stole wild steelhead, which are like yeah. such a rare and diminishing resource. Ugh. I, I I find everything about this vile and despicable, and I, I do hope the punishment ends up fitting the crime. I actually can't even think of the best punishment for this. I, I don't I don't know what it is. Should he be like should he be sentenced to spend the next twenty years working on habitat restoration? Like is that valuable Does that work should he get should he be required to get poacher tattooed across his forehead in in big black letters so he has to wear it like a scarlet letter i don't know i don't i'd, I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on what you think the punishment for this crime should be i'm not holding my breath that that we're going to get justice out of it but i think it might be fun to hear what you all think should happen to this guy oh i'd love to hear the poacher thing's great that's not going to happen the habitat restoration thing though dude that's a that's a pretty that's pretty i, I like that I like that a lot, but you know, you, you, you talked about like motivation for this stuff and you know, the guy's stealing from everybody and just reading so many of these stories with so many different kinds of fishery. And this one's definitely on another level because of how precious those fish are to begin with, you know, how rare, but I, I also feel like, you know, it's like murder. Like everybody wants to know why. And sometimes the answer is because I'm just a shit bag that doesn't care. Like that's, that's sort of like the end of the story. Like we see it out here with stripers all the time. These guys poach all these stripers. None of them, probably follow or, or they just don't care about anybody else's conservation effort going on behind that. It's just, it's irrelevant. It's pure selfishness and they just don't care. So I hate to say it, but I, I would guess these guys are not super in tune with the plight of the, the steelhead. Like, it's just like, there they are. And I need those. It's awful, but yeah. I want to believe that there's more of a reasoning behind it. I want to believe there is some like coherent philosophy, even if it's at odds with my own, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's just blind, stupid. I want, I don't know. I'm just curious. They probably, uh, they probably didn't, didn't get into this, but like, is there any correlation between the phone calls and the, the group? In other words, like, were they checking all the time or would they just seemingly get hit after somebody called and said they're steelhead in the trap? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I mean, how would they know? Like, is there a ring? Is this like a ring? I, 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 I'm, I'm joking, but I doubt it. I just think these are just dirt bags. They're everywhere, dude. In every fit, like, they're everywhere. But this one is particularly. I, and I want to, th- I want to think better of humanity than that. I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I just want to, I want to assume that people have some co- sort of coherent reasoning for the shitty things they do. And I know that's not always true, but it helps me make sense of it. Okay. Well, we'll see what Phil thinks about all of this, about the poaching, about the uh, the TikTok, about coral reefs, about killing off smallmouth. And then um, after that, we'll do a little weekly word and give you a new word to call somebody who uh, you don't like or maybe who poaches your, your steelhead. All right. It's my favorite part of the week where I get to choose which parent I would like to live with after the divorce. And this week, that parent is Joe Cermelli. What kind of an idiot falls for the old dollar on a fishing line trick? I mean, come on. Uh, All right, guys. Sorry to cut it short this week, but I have to run off to the Western Union. Um, Don't mean to name drop or anything, but there's a Nigerian prince who could really use my help. And then after he pays me back with interest, I'm quitting this job. Retiring early. I never have to listen to this shitty podcast again. F*** you. Webster's Dictionary defines fish as We started this week's show in Staten Island, New York. But for the weekly word, we're going to hop on the Jersey Turnpike and make the two-hour drive south to Philadelphia. 
And this journey is actually by request of several listeners who have asked me to give an oral history of the term shooby, and that's S-H-O-O-B-I-E. Like most slang terms we've covered in this weekly word, John, shooby isn't tied directly to fishing, but it's used pretty often by anglers along the Jersey coast from roughly mid-state to the southern tip at Cape May. However, research shows that shooby can also be heard uttered in Delaware and even certain parts of Southern California. And that's all well and good. But I'm going to go ahead and say that even if there are shoobies in Cali in the first state, the term was still borrowed from the OG shoobies, which come from Philly. Shoobies, or shoobs, for short, have been around since the late 1800s, and back in those days, the Jersey Shore was not the sprawling, crowded tourist scene it is today. In fact, only a select few areas of development even existed along the coast in the southern half of the state. Now these days, thanks to the Atlantic City Expressway, you can get from Philly to the beach in about an hour. Of course, back in the early 1900s, your fastest option was by train. And furthermore, the train was a relatively affordable option for poorer families in Philadelphia who would pack the cars on a Saturday morning for fun in the sun. Now, I've read accounts that the price of the train ticket also included a boxed lunch that came in a shoebox. I've also heard that after ponying up for that ticket, many families just didn't have enough money left over to buy food at the beach, so they carried their lunches to the beach in shoeboxes. Either way, the day trippers were easily identified by their shoebox lunch pails, and the term shooby was born. While shooby is alive and well, how one gets defined as a shooby has morphed over time. Shoobies making a day trip these days aren't hanging around Wildwood and Avalon eating stale bread out of a Buster Brown box, but according to Urban Dictionary, a shooby can be any person who looks out of place while at the beach, usually identified by the wearing of black party socks with shorts and flip-flops and or a severe sunburn. Other sources note that common shooby traits include pale skin, a lack of familiarity with local customs, and wearing shoes on the beach. However, Philly Magazine went all in in 2010 with an article that featured a series of questions aimed at helping you figure out if you are, in fact, a shooby. Here are a few examples. Have you ever used wet towels as car drapes so pedestrians or other drivers can't see you shimmy out of your wet bathing suit? Have you ever spent more than five minutes getting your towel in the perfect tanning position to the sun? Do you carry enough blankets, towels, coolers, umbrellas, and other beach paraphernalia that your family looks more like a safari expedition when you finally get to the beach? Do you go in the water, dip down to your waist, wave your hands in the water, and then get out? Do you insist on listening to a Philadelphia radio station on the beach, even when it sounds like noise from a World War II field radio? Do you engage in any kind of relationship with seagulls, feeding them, chasing them? etc. Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you might be a shooby. Now, if you want to know if you're a fishing shooby, I devised a few questions of my own. Do you roll a surf cart full of tackle and three 10-foot rods onto a crowded beach and soak bloodworms for croakers right where everyone is swimming? Do you attempt to walk out onto a wet, snot-covered jetty, carrying a six-foot spinning rod and wearing spiry topsiders that have no tread whatsoever? Do you repeatedly bomb a tuna-sized plug under the bridge directly into the wakes of 300 jet skis and ski boats at noon during a dead low tide and expect something to eat that? If you answered yes to any of those questions, I've got an old shoebox full of banjo minnows with your name on it. Look, man, if it'll get me a shoebox full of vintage banjos, 
I will strap on some topsiders <laughs> and go jetty skiing tomorrow. Hook it up. Send them. You won't you won't get very far. Just a couple rocks out and you'll bite it. That's usually what happens. But dude, you like you if you like vintage banjos, I have some. Send I them you know, on. I could actually arrange that. But speaking of vintage and flexing, uh Miles is gonna see us out this week with our end of the line segment where he's going to discuss an old bait that you might legitimately find in an old shoebox in your grandpa's cedar chest, but that also paved the way for decades of chest beating over one's skills to rope hog bass. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. When I was six years old, my holy grail was a five-pound largemouth bass. My Uncle Bob had one on his wall, a gate-mouthed green and black emblem of his fishing greatness. Now, as a grown man, I realized that a five-pound largemouth is a respectable northern specimen, but nothing awe-inspiring, and that this particular skin mount... An, an amateur garage job done by a buddy of his at bargain cost is actually far from exceptional. But 35 years ago, I didn't know any of that. I idolized my uncle and would sit on the musty cabin couch staring at his fish and ask him to tell me the tale of its capture again. It happened in the spring in the shallow back bay of the small Wisconsin lake where I first learned to fish. We never caught anything in that bay because when I was there, in the summer, the bass were in deeper water, but I would still make my uncle take me back there at least once a year and have him show me the down log where on a fateful day in the late 70s, he caught two trophy bass and a handful of casts, one weighing four and a half pounds and the other, the wall hanger coming in over five. He caught both fish on the same purple rubber worm. Older listeners will remember the worms I'm talking about. They came pre-rigged with a leader threaded from the nose of the worm through the body attached to two or three hooks that stuck out of the belly. Sometimes the hooks had thin wire weed guards on them. Sometimes the leader came dressed with other fish attractors like beads, a spinner blade, or a propeller. Back then, we called them rubber worms, even though they weren't actually made of rubber. Over time, I've noticed that the terminology has changed to more accurately describe what we fish. Most people call them plastic worms, or just plastics now. Only the real old heads still talk about rubber. Synthetic worms go back a very long time. The first American patent on an artificial worm was submitted in 1877, and it actually was made of rubber. But real rubber worms never took off. Rubber is relatively stiff and does a poor job imitating the supple juiciness of an annelid undulating in the water. For nearly a century, anglers and lure inventors struggled to find a fake alternative that worked as well as a live dirt snake. Once that finally happened, however, it changed sport fishing more substantially than just about any other new technology in history, except the fish hook itself. Nothing flexes in modern fishing like soft plastics. The man credited with inventing the first plastic worm is Nick Cream, who came up with his prototype in 1949. Some evidence suggests, however, that a man named David DeLong may have actually figured it out three years before Cream, but DeLong was not as successful at marketing his creations. Lore also claims DeLong as the first person to scent his worms with anise oil, a tidbit I have to mention as a nod to our resident striper expert, Bob the Garbage Man Bertana Nananuski. 
While soft plastics really gained popularity and came into their own in the American South, they are Midwestern in origin. DeLong was from Indiana, and Cream hailed from Ohio, where he worked as a machinist. The mid-20th century saw the peak of American industry. Guys like Cream and DeLong understood industrial design and production. They also had enough disposable income to go fishing on the weekends and enough moxie and confidence to dream of quitting their day jobs and making a living at what they truly loved. Cream saw his opportunity in an emerging new chemistry. Plastics. Exactly how do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Story goes that Cream paid a visit to DuPont Chemicals in Cleveland, and a lab tech gave him some chemicals to take home. How exactly he talked his way into walking out with a few buckets of proprietary chemicals to play with remains unclear. Maybe he paid the guy off. Maybe they shared a couple nips from a pocket flask. Maybe Cream was just that smooth. Maybe the story is total BS, but it makes a good story, so I'm sticking with it. Nick Cream and his wife Cosma spent the next year playing with polymers, pigments, and oils in their kitchen. Each time they thought they had a viable mixture, Cream would carry a vat of it down to the basement and pour it into a mold he made from a steel model of a real nightcrawler. In 1951, the couple took their first plastic worm to market. Like I said, Cream Lure wasn't the only company making similar products with pre-harnessed plastic worms. But they also sold unrigged replacement worms. And a few years later, an unknown bass angler fishing on Lake Tyler, one of the many newly created reservoirs in East Texas, came up with a rigging technique that would make Nick and Cosma Cream's worms world famous. That anonymous angler removed the brass eyelet from a bell sinker, threaded his line through the weight, tied on a bare hook, poked that hook through the nose of one of Cream's replacement worms, pushed it through, turned it around, and inserted the hook point and barb into the worm's soft belly so that both were hidden within the supple plastic. The Texas rig was born. By 1959, cream worms were the hottest commodity in the Lone Star State. Selling for a buck a piece, which translates to about $9 today, Cream Lure was making good money. And a year later, they moved their headquarters from Akron, Ohio to Tyler, Texas. Cream Lures achieved early success by being the first large-scale plastic bait manufacturer, but competition caught up quickly. Cream had to find new ways to stay ahead of the spreading sea of soft plastic lure options hitting the shelves. He recognized the marketing power of influencers a half century before anyone ever used that term. Cream tracked down the best local anglers and started paying them to travel all over the South, showing off the effectiveness of soft plastic baits and teaching others how to use them. He also targeted the pros and allegedly struck the first angler endorsement deal with John Powell, who he paid $18,000 to fish cream worms on the BASS series in 1967. Additionally, Cream conscripted Bill Dance, who endorsed the worms at tournaments, events, and on his long-running television show. Nick Cream died in 1984. He's been inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, the Texas Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, and the Texas Freshwater Fisheries Center. More importantly, though, every time an angler rigs up a soft plastic bait, which is to say thousands of times a day all over the world, they're unknowingly paying homage to a machinist from Ohio who wanted to build a better worm. 
So that's it for this week. If you're staring into the mirror, trying to get that beach bod to pop in just the right ways, remember, never suggest your guide's fish finders on demo mode. Bring your own lunch when creeping on pay lakes with strangers. If you decide instead to take that lunch to the Jersey Shore, don't pack it in a shoebox. And Nick Cream and his inventions flexed harder than Macho Man Randy Savage. But the cream will rise to the top. Oh, yeah. How perfect was that clip? Anyway, <laughs> right after you slather your bleach white skin with a quart of SPF 2000, feel free to share a sailboat item, bar nomination, awkward photo, or newsy bit with us at bent at themeateater.com. We've also got eyes on those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags on the gram, and using them is the fastest way to score stickers from us. We also hope you've gotten eyes on the new fish hoodies and t-shirts yeah. in your store mm-hmm. because they will look great on you while you are jamming out to the bent Spotify music playlist on the beach this summer. That's right. They'll also really bring out the shit and that shit-eating grin you love to flash while flexing on the 12-year-old's bass fishing at the local golf course pond. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 